This event was recorded at the 2018 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Fine, please do. <laughs> please clap. Um, makes it less awkward. Hi, good evening. Um, thank you very much for coming to this event. My name is Stephanie Merritt. Um, it's a real pleasure to see so many people here. Um, although it's become autumn in the last two hours. How did that happen? Um, I'm just going to get my admin out. Um, it's... Yeah, a real pleasure to be talking this evening to these two um, fantastic novelists, and I hope that um, you will have some questions at the end as well. Uh, I just will give you a little intro to, um, to them before we start talking about their books. Leni Zumas is the author of the story collection Farewell Navigator and the novel The Listeners, which was a finalist for the Oregon Book Award. Red Clocks is her second novel. It's been compared to Margaret Atwood, and The Guardian said of it, her talent is electric, get ready for a shock. So um, that's very exciting. Sophie McIntosh uh, has been published in Granta magazine and has won the 2016 White Review Short Story Prize and the 2016 Virago Stylist Short Story Competition. The Water Cure is her first novel, and it has been long-listed for the Man Booker Prize, which is a fantastic achievement for a debut. The Arts Desk Review called it a tense and haunting debut, as eerily prescient as it is otherworldly. And she's also been compared to uh, Margaret Atwood. So <laughs> um, I want to ask you both about um, a little bit of background about these books. But um, before I do, uh, let's, let's deal with the Atwood question. Is it... Um, is it possible to write a book in which women's rights are compromised uh, without being compared to Margaret Atwood? Or is she just this sort of towering colossus of all kind of dystopian feminist fiction? And, and was she a particular benchmark or an influence for, for both of you, Lainey? I have looked into the faces of some people interviewing me and seen them kind of crumple in disbelief when I say that I was really not thinking about Margaret Atwood when I wrote uh, Red Clocks. She is uh, someone I have definitely read, um, I, and I even wrote uh, part of my undergrad thesis on another of her novels, Surfacing. Um, but uh, I think some, sometimes I wonder if uh, one of the... The problem isn't Margaret Atwood. Maybe it's it's sort of our collective imaginations and being able to sort of see women's stories in... A, a huge multiplicity of ways and a variety and and not saying oh it's about women having troubles it's like Margaret Atwood you know <laughs> and um which again not to uh, certainly in in both of our books there's um so much about control of women's bodies and and mm. in that way it makes sense to to draw those relations uh but I think both of our books are incredibly different from The Handmaid's Tale and um it's fl it's a flattering comparison mm. uh but I think, as with a lot of different kinds of of work that that's not the experience of uh, you know the the white male everyman, like I, I think it's really good for our imaginations to uh, see differences and 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 variety rather than only sameness. Mm. Yeah. Sophie. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I read The Handmaid's Tale when I was a teenager, mm -hmm. and I thought it was absolutely amazing. But it wasn't like necessarily something. I had in mind when writing my book um, I think like yeah it's about kind of we have these experiences that it's easy to kind of pigeonhole and to say like oh it's like this and it's like that and um, yeah like 
it, it's, it, it's strange, it's interesting to me that these books that are so different can be kind of classified in this way, but also um, you don't turn down like a matri- an upward like, comparison. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I guess it's just, yeah, these women's stories that we are seeing, and there are so many of them, it's easy to say, oh, it's like a Margaret Atwood story, but I think as they come more and more, um, we will find like a new language to classify them that doesn't just kind of put them under the same umbrella. Yeah, so perhaps it's just a sort of, um, maybe not necessarily a lazy labelling, but it's, a, it's, you know, critics reaching for something that everybody is, that is very current and that everybody's going to go, oh, I see, you know, oh, I know what kind of thing I expect this to be. Mm-hmm. Um, well, we, we're going to come back to um, the themes of these books and certainly this idea about control and and women's autonomy um but i i'd like you both to to give us a little bit of background about how you came to write these stories and and um what you what kind of story you wanted to tell when you when you started writing and if it ended up being the same kind of thing um and i mean laney the, the the tagline for this event in the program was what is a woman for which is also the the strap line on your cover, which is sort of seems such a kind of almost like a, a tongue-in-cheek question, but it's it is something that you're looking at in a through a slightly different lens in this book. Yeah, it's a question that pretty clearly to me has has no answer because there are too many answers, right? Um, that, that there there couldn't there couldn't be one thing or even ten or a hundred things that a woman is for. Um, but I think. Um, I think it's connected to why I started writing the book. I, I started writing it in 2010 when I was um, having a lot of questions and anxieties in, in my own life about becoming a mother. Um, I had medical infertility, and um, so I had, try, I had tried actually as a single or solo person to have a kid to get pregnant um, using sperm I bought on the internet. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> that didn't work. And that's sort of when I started figuring out that I had some, some medical stuff going on. Um, but even when I was trying with, um, with my partner and it wasn't working and I was really having to go, I, I did not want to go there, but I had to go there to this place of like, why do I want this? Like, why do I want to become a mother? Like, where does this desire come from? Like, what will... You know, I, I have all these examples around me of women whose lives are just as rich and just as amazing without kids and then with kids. And, and so I had I was sort of confronting those things myself. And um, I started writing an essay about it that wasn't working as an essay. And so I started I made up the character of the biographer, who's a, one of the main characters in Red Clocks. And she became my my stand in, so to speak, mm-hmm. um, for dealing. She, she's someone who is happily single and um trying to get pregnant herself and uh, getting frustrated on on a lot of different counts and so it, it started from that those personal questions and then I was doing a lot of research about different kinds of fertility treatments and the history of fertility treatments and I started to read about this thing called the person amendment personhood amendment which is um, uh, a lot of conservative politicians in the US where I live uh, want to grant rights of life, liberty, and property to a fertilized egg at the moment of conception, and, and they want to enshrine this um, in an in amendment that says the the embryo has, has personhood. Um, mm. And when I started reading about that, that's when when the novel got a lot bigger, and, and I started to imagine what would happen if, if that were passed in the U.S., which, which I think still could happen with the, the people we have currently in charge of our government. Mm. 
Well, it's it, it's extraordinary because I mean I think it's you know it's easy to again this easy labelling to talk about like dystopias, but the world that you're portraying is really a tiny policy shift away from yeah. where we are now, and yet the the impact on all the different women in this novel is really extraordinary about what suddenly becomes a criminal offence and things that we that we take for granted and what I was really interested in is um, this is a it's kind of in fact both these books and this is something I want to come back to they're ensemble pieces they're they're books with multiple voices and multiple women speaking to us directly and um, and what you've done here is to, to look at different it's a kind of slightly playful look at different roles that women have mm-hmm. had and and the sections are are labeled with the kind of you know with the women's roles so you've got you know you you've got the wife and then you've got the the, the professional woman who mm-hmm. is single and then you've got uh, a young the daughter uh, the, yeah. the, the daughter and then there's this extraordinary character who is the the mender who is a kind of a witch actually which again was one of the roles that w- was historically always assigned to women. Can you talk us through where these characters came from and what you wanted to say with them? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, again, thinking about sort of fictional construction and have, have wanting to have characters who kind of play off each other, I think it's one of the, the really brilliant things about Sophie's book that there are these sisters and also a mother character and the ways that those play off of each other um, gives so much energy to the book and so I was thinking okay you have this woman who really wants a a child doesn't really want to be married what if there's a woman who kind of got everything she wanted in in air quotes um she has a husband and two children and she's known as the wife um but she also has frustrations with her life and and the mender um kind of started just because I've long been really interested in witches and witch persecution and uh, and also noticing how today, there, I feel like we're in this witch moment where we have been for the past <laughs> several years where witches are really cool, and which is awesome. Um, but um, it, it's, I, anyway, so I started reading um, transcripts of the Salem witch trials and, and thinking about how those trials were so predetermined, like the outcome was basically already known to everyone mm-hmm. and those, the ways in which uh, that can happen, I think, with... Uh, women getting pigeonholed into these roles or behaviors and if you act if you do this you're the slut and if you do that you're the virgin and um and that's where it came from yeah Yeah. well and and again with the idea of witches it's a a sort of a fear of women's power yeah a really kind of quite elemental male fear and that certainly comes out in those historical um witch trials Mm -hmm. um sophie your your book is well first congratulations thank you um, <laughs> man book a long listing what um what an extraordinary thing for a first novel did you ever in your wildest imaginings think that it would be kind of that, that it would be picked up in this way or you know no I mean I just I, I really didn't I think like maybe once or twice I was like oh wouldn't it be great if I like you know it was long listed for the booker and I was like I mean it's not gonna happen (laughs) it's my first ever book and I'm a young woman writing about young women in a way that I feel like just isn't necessarily recognized like not by the booker specifically but just in kind of I guess it's like a literary thing I don't know like I just I just didn't expect it I was so excited and so happy because I just felt it was really important to me but maybe important like in a bigger level as well. Yeah. Well, it's it's exciting to see a book like this recognised 
um, on that kind of level. So your novel is set in a... Um, it's a more abstract uh, kind of threat to women um, in the, the, the setting for this novel. Can you tell us a little bit about the origins of this story and, and how it reached this kind of final form? Because I think you've said in other interviews that it started out as a more sort of sci-fi mm. piece of work. So I just, I've, I'm really, I've been always really interested in like families and kind of... I was writing about the family and I had the sense of like great calamity, some massive kind of disaster had befallen them. And I wanted to find, well, I, I kind of, I was writing, I think I thought of it as like eco disaster. I imagined like flooded world. They were kind of um, like running from a very more concrete threat. Mm. And I think just at the time I was writing it, I kept kind of going on tangents and I wasn't writing the story that I set out to write. I kept. Um, writing tangents about like bodily control, um, things that kind of fed into how I was feeling at the time, which was, you know, it was kind of like 2016, like Brexit was happening. You had like Trump coming to power. You had um, all these views that we had always kind of seen as really out there views that were now suddenly becoming mainstream. Um, so I think I was like, why am I inventing a calamity when actually sometimes it feels really dangerous to go outside my own house in like east london and like walk down the street wearing like a crop top like wherever maybe this is kind of the danger that i'm being trying to put into words and so what you've got is this this family who have deliberately isolated themselves mm. on an island and and the threat because on the mainland there is supposedly a threat to women but again that's sort of left it's left quite abstract and, and what you've got is a world that's been defined really by the patriarch of the family um, and, and who has his own views about controlling his daughters and, and whether that's for their own good. And I know that um, there have been um, comparisons made to, to King Lear with this book because you've got this, this very controlling father and, and the three daughters. Was that in the back of your mind or were there other kind of literary influences that fed in? I think it was definitely in the back of my mind, this idea of, you know, like an isolated community and, you know, a father who kind of knows best. And the idea of like trusting your family and, you know, like when, when you're like the head of your family says what's real, you don't really question it. Um, and just playing with those ideas of love. And I think it's, as well, it's the first novel that was just, you have so many things that inspire you and so many things you kind of want to put into it. Um, but I think definitely for me, yeah, that was a, a key thing. Uh, and again, there's this notion of um, keeping women safe, keeping young women in particular safe from the threat of men and the threat of the, the, the vulnerability that young women have in relation to men. Um, but you're playing all the time with these ambiguities of, you know, is the father actually cutting them off from, from their own sexuality and from their own experiences and, and is the danger as real as, as he tries to make it out to them? Is, is that another way of... Because, uh, again, that's another thing that we hear about, you know, women being controlled for their own good and for their own safety. Yeah, there are so many kind of... We're told things to keep ourselves safe. Um, we're told things in so, so many conflicting things to keep ourselves safe. Um, 
I think like in the novel, a key thing is just how how do you keep yourself safe and how how possible is it to keep yourself safe? And how even when you are keeping yourself safe from the big threat, like this kind of this toxic masculinity conceptualized as an actual disease, how actually could that be the decoy? Is the real is the real disease kind of happening even closer? And I don't know, that makes it sound so depressing, actually, isn't it? It's like we can't ever be safe. We can't ever even when you think you're doing the things that are correct to protect yourself, like, is it just kind of feeding into something else? But yeah, it's just, how do we know what's the right way to protect ourselves? And what are the kind of the rules we put on ourselves as well as society puts on us to kind of make ourselves feel safe? That's why I thought um, one of the most interesting characters in The Water Cure is the mother, um, because she has a, uh, in, in terms of disciplining and punishing and uh, the daughters, she has a huge role in that. Mm. Can you talk about how you conceptualized her character? And sure. Well, actually, yeah. it's like it's it's funny because we we have the woman at the border in Red Clocks, who is the one who um, tells Matty, the daughter, you you're going to be sent to like juvenile detention. You're going to prison. Like you're trying to have an abortion, and it's like a man in that situation who's like oh no, no spoilers but like yeah, yeah. <laughs> sorry those are spoilers no, I'm so sorry it's fine. um but you, yeah we have we have women in positions of power all through red clocks and through the water gear who actually uphold the power structures and don't they're not like they're not kind figures they're not ones kind of working to help help women so I think it's really interesting how women can be complicit in the, those kind of patriarchal things mm. and it's, it's it's not as easy as being like you can trust the woman because sometimes you can't mm-hmm. yeah and the, the idea that you know, we're not always necessarily looking out for each other's best interests. And I wanted to to ask you both about, um, because these books are, they're about the particular vulnerabilities of women in relation to men, but they're also about the strengths of women. And one of those strengths is in, it is in the solidarity of bonds between women, although there are examples where that isn't the case Mm -hmm. for both of them. But um, can you tell us a bit about about your characters, because um, as we've touched on, we've got, we've got multiple narratives in, in both books and multiple voices being heard. And I, I wanted to ask you about the, the practical business of creating a novel that has so many different voices in and, and how you keep those characters separate in your head and, and how you went about the writing and the development of those characters. So Lenny, can you say something about these different women and, and how they came to you? Yeah, um, so... I, I like thinking about things in triangles for fiction, like the, because it's an unstable um, configuration, you know, the, the, and, and there can be sort of um, sort of shifting loyalties and, you know, it's not, it doesn't have the symmetry or balance, allegedly, of like a pair. Um, so when I had this character, the biographer, who um, is subject to these laws that are basically preventing her from being able to have a child, I thought, okay, there has to be someone who has who does who did successfully have children and then someone who is pregnant and doesn't want to be pregnant right um and then within that i wanted to try to complicate those relationships and and not have them just sort of seem like symbolic or just stand-ins for positions um and and i also wanted with having different threads of of third person uh narration that are sticking to one character uh, to really get into a little bit of the the kind of silent judgments that um, people have of other people, even their best friends or you know people who their loved ones, uh, ways that they're not um, sort of 
being critical, um, but they're they're kind of judging or comparing, like comparing and despairing um, about other people's lives. And so I think that um, uh, that element of female friendship, but also female mentorship. So you know, there's the, a 15 year old girl who's pregnant, and she's the student of the biographer character who wants to be pregnant and um, I wanted there to be a, a real I, I didn't want the biographer just to be this helpful benevolent like oh like I'll, let me mentor you through this I wanted her to be like god like I want to be pregnant and she's 42 and then here's this 15 year old who um, doesn't want to be pregnant but is and and sort of what happens there and and the, mm-hmm. the kind of decisions that people make based on either their own individual situations or thinking about principle um, and, you know, what does it mean to call yourself a feminist and also feel jealous of another woman and, like, what, what mm-hmm. where's the discomfort in that, you know? And um, so that's why I, I wanted there to be multiple narratives rather than just one person kind of controlling our vision of all of the characters. And again, and these are questions that I think are, they're hard to talk about and it's like they, it it's uncomfortable to talk about the ways in which women can let each other down or, mm-hmm. or feel that we've been let down when, you know, it's particularly at, at a time when we're all very conscious of needing to stand together. And I think that sometimes through fiction, that's a, a more accurate way to do that because you can look at the ways it happens actually in relationships. Um, and you've also got this sort of shadow character i know you hate being asked about the, no. the polar explorer but no i love you've got this it, yeah. you've got this shadow character who yeah. is the biographer's subject who is a, a a sort of pioneering female polar explorer can you tell us where she came from and, and how she fits into the narrative for you sure i i think stephanie is referring to I, there there have been people in at readings for now and who've raised their hand and said laney I don't, why is the Polar Explorer character in this book? I'm on page 100, and I don't know how to read her, read this character. And um, because this is, so the book takes place in present-day Oregon, but then there's this character who's living in the 19th century. She's from the Faroe Islands, and she taught herself um, basically hydrology, and she smuggles her way onto exploration ships uh, going to the Arctic. Um, so... The biographer really cares about stories that, historical stories of women um, who never really got a chance to have their voices heard. You know, their stories were buried or um, sort of distorted or never like captured in the first place. And so she's found this scientist who had to publish her um, her data under a male a man's name because the Royal Society wouldn't believe that she had collected the data. Um, and we get in the book, we get her story in these snippets and fragments. And um, I, I think t- for me, it was a it was about a kind of textural and, and tonal change in um, t- to kind of create the sense of the bigger world outside of these four present day women's lives and the ways in which, like you know, for me as someone in the early 21st century, it does matter when I read the story um, of a woman who existed in the 19th century and what her life was like and that changes my life today um and i think for all of us we ha- we have these kind of debts and gratitudes to people who came before us so i wanted there to be that um that in there um and, and it's the same reason i chose to, to there's this kind of underground collective in the book um now that abortion is illegal they they perform abortions uh kind of off the radar much like um many women were doing before mm. january 1973 in the united states and I just wanted to kind of acknowledge that and 
and reach back to to touch that because it seems so important that women were doing that. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, Sophie, can you tell us about the relationship between the sister? Well, particularly between the sisters. Um, first of all, because they each sort of speak individually, and they've each got quite distinctive, very distinctive voices. Um, so I wondered about the, the creation of those narratives and whether you were sort of putting their stories together uh, kind of sequentially or whether you had one person's narrative that, that kind of took over for you. Um, and also particularly when, when they speak together, like a, almost like a Greek chorus and, and how that works, because there's obviously an incredibly strong bond between them, but it's, it's quite fraught as well, the mm. relationship between the siblings. So tell us a bit about that. I think um, I always had like Leah, the middle sister, she was kind of the dominant voice for me when I was writing it. And I remember in kind of very early drafts, she was the the main voice. And as I wrote it, I just thought how much I wanted to hear from the other sisters and how many stories we have where we don't get like kind of the other women's voices in it and stuff. So I wanted to um, think about that. And I just, I think it's, it's such an insular story, you know, it's like it's happening in one place. And there is so much kind of going on, but on a small level, I wanted to get their their views on what was happening. And they are three sisters and they are very similar. They've grown up in the same place, but they all have completely different reactions to kind of the events happening. And I'm doing the kind of the group voice, especially at the beginning. Um, for me, it was kind of a way to explore how they are so close, how they, ha- they have that sibling bond, which... You, you can forget like how how kind of close it can be how 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 much that love like binds you and how almost like traumatic it can be when you start growing away and then when when mm. like the men do arrive on the island they do start growing away and that's when the voices really kind of separate and we have that kind of that breach um so for me it was kind of just a way of exploring how close they are and then getting their stories but also examining how they grow apart over the course of the story um, but then, you know, maybe come together at some point. Yeah, and for each of them, there's a, a very different way of looking at what's been done to them in their in their childhood by their by their parents, in particular by their father, and the the ways in which they relate to their father. And Grace, the older sister, talks directly to to the father, who I don't think it's a spoiler to say kind of disappears pretty early on yeah. in the book. And <laughs> so he's so it is for, certainly for the beginning of the book, it's a community of women, but with this kind of huge shadow cast by the absent patriarch and and did did you always have that in mind the way that that he has shaped each of their different consciences and characters absolutely like i just yeah he there is no way he couldn't have like not shaped them like that's that's kind of the the paradox it's like a book where mainly there's not men in it except until kind of later on and it's a book on women but it's still a book about how these women have been shaped by specifically one man's influence on them and how you kind of overcome that um i was also in mind of the virgin suicide which i read when i was quite young and Mm. i really loved it and something that i loved about that was the chorus voice and it was you know a chorus narrating the story but it was a male gaze completely and i just wanted to invert that as well yeah um it's really interesting i mean we've touched on this already but um I think as soon as you start uh, with the idea of a story in which in which women's the rights that we have now uh, are taken for granted or or, are, or the rights that we now take for granted are compromised in some way, 
Um, and women's bodies are being controlled and women's choices are being limited, then immediately we're, we're talking about novels that are political in, in some way. Um, and yet we all know that reading a book with a very kind of heavy-handed political message is kind of deathly dull and it's, it's the death of story and of fiction. So um, I want, was interested in how you, um, how you, in the writing process, how you dealt with the idea of kind of keeping these issues in mind without letting them overwhelm the story or did did that kind of did they sort of become part of the fabric of the story as you were as you were telling it yeah I think that's a great question because I, I mean I think one of the reasons I'm a fiction writer um, is because I love the the capacity for fiction to um, really plunge a reader into the experience of the consequences of some of legislation or of uh, you know, sort of systemic misogyny or, or, you know, any kind of like large cultural systems. What we can get in fiction is how does the body and, and kind of mind and soul of this one woman in this one place react to that? Like, how does, how does she metabolize that, you know, and, and feel that? And so, um, you know, rather than make some kind of abstract claims about what it would mean for abortion to be illegal again, you know, what does it feel like if you're just this or not just, if you're a 15-year-old sophomore who's in high school who's thinking about wanting to be a biology major in college and you're really interested in whales and whale death and then you also are aware that you're pregnant and you don't want to be and, and you know that all the choices that you have before you are illegal um, and that and she also, the, the daughter character, has a best friend who um, uh, tried to give herself an abortion and... Uh, when she was in the hospital, was arrested um, and sent away to juvenile detention. Um, and there are actual politicians in in my beleaguered nation um, who want that to be true. I mean, they want there yeah. to be a first degree murder charge for women of and girls of any age who um, either have an abortion or try to get one. Um, mm. And so, rather than kind of talk about that as a policy decision, like what you know, you know, how is the, the girl who's affected by that, like, chewing on licorice? Like, why, you know, how is she um, obsessing about something else in order not to think about that, right? And, and I think that um, trying to focus on that inhabiting rather than, because um, as you say, yeah. it's like the death of a good novel. Yeah. Like, a novel will not be good if it's just telling you what to think about anything, right? Um, so, and, you know... And, and that question, when I was reading um, Sophie's book, you know, there's there are these really interesting moments where um, either Grace or Leah is thinking about uh, how they're, they're watching these men, male characters and thinking how it, it must feel to move through the world in a male body. And, and again, that's what I'm talking about. It's like a curiosity about this one body is is, is so much more immersive than just saying a man can walk down the street and not be worried about such and such. Mm. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Were you worried about the like didactic, being didactic, <laughs> or yeah? Yeah, I guess because I wasn't writing about like a specific policy. I was kind of more. I was like, I didn't set out to be like, I'm writing like a feminist polemic. I was like, I'm literally yeah. writing about my feelings. I'm writing about yeah. things that I'm concerned about, like on a daily basis. Like, like oh, I can't go for like a walk, or I can't go for a run in the park, or like I like you know someone like I'm like touched all the time, or you know like things that kind of 
just if you kind of try to explain to a male friend sometimes they would say like oh I've never really experienced that so you're probably mm. like making it up and it was just it was more of an ephemeral kind of vibe yeah. <laughs> I guess it was just like the sense that was in the atmosphere of like oh we've just really we've lived with this our whole life and it's getting worse and like actually what do we what do we do about it yeah. um but yeah and there, well, I think, and there is that kind of very, you know, that's why these both of these books feel incredibly timely because there is a sense that, um, I mean, certainly for us, we're kind of the same age. It, like twenty years ago, things seemed pretty rosy, probably before social me- social media, or you know, things certainly felt yeah. more positive. And and I think for the next generation of um, young women, there is a kind of greater awareness of all the multiple threats coming at you all the time. I don't know if it was the same in the States, but I certainly don't remember in college being as a as aware as women seem to be now. So it does seem to be um, that this is a very timely... Uh, these are very timely books, and I wonder if... Um, I know the, the, the Atwood who, uh, who looms over all of this, but it, it certainly, it's taken 30-something years to put The Handmaid's Tale on television, and I, it doesn't feel like a coincidence that that has happened at a time when all of these issues have suddenly started to feel more pertinent. Does yeah. That, does that feel like that's the case? Well, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it, I think um, there's an interesting phenomenon that happens when, you know, as you know, Sophie's describing, like, okay, I was thinking about, you know, you're thinking about things that you're feeling, like, in these characters, and rather than, oh, I'm going to make a statement about such and such. And I think that um, right now, because there is a moment in publishing when a lot of, Stories um, that that do have like a that are called feminist or called feminist dystopias are coming out, which is amazing, and and they're all kind of different from each other, but uh, they're they're all coming from you know it took me like seven years to write my book, like it might take someone fifteen years to write a book, and so if we're reaching back into you know two thousand three when someone started writing something, like how did like they're all appearing now, but I think they come from so much longer of a history yeah. of of going through that. And you know, The Handmaid's Tale. Yeah, I, I don't, have a lot of you seen the the series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I haven't seen it yet. So oh, okay, um, um, but, yeah. no, no spoilers. Um, so I wanted to ask you both a bit about your your writing process. Um, because you both uh, are short story writers as well, or you, you've both published um, short stories, and I wondered if that was where you started writing and, and whether that was something that you had always kind of wanted to do or done on the side, or, and, and how you make that leap from short stories to a novel, or whether the novel was always ticking over in the background, and what, what, where, did you, where did your writing life start, Sophie? Um, so I actually I started with poetry <laughs> ah, okay. and then I kind of I think I went straight from poetry to novels and I didn't actually really have like short stories in the middle but I came to short stories like almost after I like we all have like a novel in a drawer and I think when that kind of didn't work out for me I was like well I'm going to return to like shorter things um, things that kind of give me like joy and fun to write um, I really like writing novels I really like having a long project um, and to wake up in the morning and think like this is a thing I'm just going to add a little bit more to instead of being like well I've got this finite thing with a whole arc and a whole like emotional like line that I need to complete <laughs> with a novel it's like you can kind of just do it do it for like years <laughs> it's just story you're like well I have to like I have to 
to, I can't let this drag on for a really long time. So it's like a, a sprint versus a marathon. Mm. And I like running marathons and some people like running sprints. Um, but I do, I do really love short stories. I think it's just, it's a different kind of mindset. It's a different approach. Um, I think it's nice to switch between the two because you get the benefits of both, like sprinting and marathon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a runner. <laughs> yeah. Except yeah. What, what you'll find is um, the minute you have some success with a novel, you, you then don't have the luxury of spending years on the next one because your publishers will be going, come on then, where's the next one? Um, so you, yeah, you'll probably have to uh, sprint through, through the next book, but we can come back to that. Lainey, do you, do I'm very <laughs> similar. I mean, I, um, my, the first novel I wrote... Uh, failed to be published after we my agent tried to publish it and now I'm really glad that it wasn't published because it was not it was kind of a mess but at the time I was like no this is my novel that I wrote and um, but that it will always be in a drawer and so that is when I turned to um, you know trying to get a short fiction collection going so I, I like writing stories as as um, like coming up for air from the strange cave of, of, of the novel um, and I, I like them both, but yeah, there's something about having like the long projects going. I think you can, so you can yeah. play with short stories. Like you can try yeah. something out. Like if you try something out in a novel, like it might not. You might write a whole novel and then realize it's like it doesn't work. But you can try like two thousand words. If it doesn't work, it's like that's great. Well, that's yeah. fine. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't waste like all all like two years. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And Lenny, you also teach creative writing, and I wonder how that kind of fits with with doing your own work are you are you suddenly really do you find yourself in the middle of a piece of writing and going oh no I'm doing everything that I tell my students not to do or, oh yeah yeah <laughs> I mean I, even I'll be in class and I'll say you know don't use the something I mean I'm actually not a very prescriptive teacher I, I'm more interested in kind of asking a lot of questions and then sort of seeing how students um, respond to them but I, I will give little pieces of advice and then realize like oh damn like I just this morning, I you know <laughs> used an adverb or something. I don't. Um, uh, yeah, that was. And you know, when I was in grad school for writing, the, my my teacher said never use the word silhouette. Like she had all these things that she would tell us <laughs> not to do. I'm like, or don't say something's in the middle of the room because nothing's like exactly in the middle of the room. And and sometimes those those kind of rules come to me as I'm writing. I'm like, she saw the silhouette. Nope, no, no silhouette. Um, <laughs> But I, I think teaching, there's a, um, it's, it's, it's tough because teaching uh, also, it, it, it kind of demands of me a, a, a different degree of honesty in terms of what I think, uh, I think the longer I teach, the fewer, you know, rules I think there mm. should be, you know, because I just, there's so many ways to make uh, exciting fiction yeah. or, or poetry or, or different kinds of prose and um, I would never want to sort of diminish a student's feeling like, oh, well, what if I, something I'm writing is too much this way? It's like, th I, I think unless you have the privacy with your own work to just say, like, I'm going to do what I'm doing and not imagine who's going to buy it or who's going to read mm -hmm. it or judge it, like, there has to be that that time um, or else you're just kind of writing to a formula. You know? Yeah. Um, when you... Um, when you come to your to your own writing, I mean, in terms of um, influences, do you think that that uh, that things have changed? And I wonder, particularly, if you see this with your students, um, because the way the ways in which we consume stories now have changed so much, even in the past ten years. People are listening to audiobooks so much more, and and podcasts and serial podcasts, and there's this huge, um, but a huge boom in kind of long form drama on television. Do you think? 
that any of that has influenced the way that you write or the way that, that people are writing now? Or are you very much in a kind of literary tradition? Are those the kind of the influences that you keep in mind? Sophie, do you, do you have people in mind when you're writing that you I'm admire? I'm very, like, selfish <laughs> when I write. I just, I kind of, yeah, just, I want to write the things that I want to read. Um, but I do think that I'm very filmic in the way that I write. And I think, I, I was a musician before I was a writer, and I think I just always think about kind of, I always have, like, it sounds really lame, but I have a soundtrack, like, in my head for, like, everything I write. So I think I always imagine scenes very visually, yeah. and I always think about it in that sense. And yeah, when people are like, oh, like, I can imagine this as a film. I'm like, I can imagine it as a film too. <laughs> like I kind of, maybe I would have gone into filmmaking, but it's e- not easier to write, but it's it's different. Like you can just kind of sit down and do it yourself. But I've got mm. a very specific kind of visual cue for how those things work. But it's also very poetic. I mean, your, the way that you use language and imagery is is very lyrical. And so it is very poetic in, um, in that sense as well. Mm, so, so do you think the poetry background has... Yeah, helped. definitely. And I think always, always the people I have like influences I have a, a biggest connection with, are like people like Maggie Nelson. Like every time I when I read Bluettes, I just remember like my my brain being basically like my, the top of my brain coming off and just being so excited and thinking like oh we can like we can merge forms we can mm-hmm. we can say things in a very like precise way um, that I didn't actually realize you can do. Um, yeah, and I'm I'm very influenced especially by like, short story writers like Joy Williams and things mm-hmm. like just that kind of. I guess that strangeness that you can you can make things happen with words that you can't do in other mediums, but you can still kind of give that like that feeling that you get when you when you listen to something or you see a film or you see an image. Yeah. Well, yeah. And and I think what is interesting though that you know we read a, or many of us read a lot of things online, um, and I find um, you know I see in myself, my students, my my friends who are writers writing these kind of uh, more kind of. Using a lot of white space and having a lot of jump cuts that mm-hmm. are very filmic, like you know, and end the scene at this you know climactic moment and then jump to another thing, and um, and I find for for my reading practice to kind of counteract that in in, in my head, so I don't go too much to that. I think um, c- certain of like the modernists um, writing in English uh, who were really plunging pretty deep into interiority and um, sort of the motion of the mind rather than the motion of like bodies being choreographed around a room because I, I think one of my default settings too much so is is imagining how people look when they're moving around rather than how it kind of feels to to be doing that and so that's just a little kind of counteractive measure that I I have to do in, yeah. in reading. Um, I also read a lot of poetry. I love Maggie Nelson and um, and uh, just sort of finding writers who have that kind of density and strangeness and, and who also move in really interesting ways formally, I think, um, yeah, are, are great. So... It's like, de- yeah, density. Yeah. The idea of like Maggie Nelson, like Bluettes could be like a 100,000 word book, but She's just yeah. taking out the bits that didn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I want to take out the yeah. bits that don't matter. <laughs> yeah. And that sense of interiority, I think, is the one thing that it, it's one of the things that the novel has, that the novel can do uniquely that other forms of storytelling yeah. can't can't manage to do, and you know, which you both do in in these in these books. Um, so before we uh, let the audience have a chance to ask some questions, I just wanted to um, to ask both of you what. <coughs> What comes next after these projects? Do you have 
other things that you're working on, and particularly for you, Sophie, I mean, is it, um, is it daunting now that, the, that this one's kind of had this acclaim? Does it make you think, oh, that's, you know, it's going to affect the way you write the next one, or, that, or do you have to just not think about that? And I'm just trying not to think about it. I'm just going to stay selfish and stay very, like, interior, I think, and just kind of just carry on with what I was doing. And I was, I was kind of, like, working on something before the news came out anyway, and I'm really glad I was because it's just yeah. nice to think like I'm just gonna just keep on keep on working on my next book. And is and it in a is it in a similar vein or um are you, are you I would say like not not like a million miles away but it's not like completely different but it's it is different I think yeah, yeah sorry I'm being so cagey I feel like very <laughs> superstitious I'm like this, oh, no, this yeah. book <laughs> no, no one wants to talk about the book they haven't written yet <laughs> just in case yeah. Lenny, do you have um, projects? Yeah, I on the do. Board? I'm work also working on a, another long thing um, that's pretty messy at this point. Um, I'm really interested, sort of generally speaking, about um, writing about configurations of family or kind of um, kinship that are not like nuclear families, um, and especially ones that are intergenerational or are kind of brought about by um, sort of mutual suffering and need rather than oh, each little isolated kind of normative nuclear family in their own little box uh, lining the street. Um, so that's one of the things I'm investigating in this new book. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, we'll look yeah. forward to those, both of those coming up. In the meantime, um, these fantastic books are available in the, um, in the book tent afterwards, mm-hmm. um, where both our authors will be signing. But I wanted to give you a chance to ask some questions now, um, either about the, the themes that we've covered or any, anything about writing um, do pick their brains. So can we have the lights up? Um, is there a microphone? There is a microphone. So um, if anybody has a, a question, do you put... Oh, yeah, there's um, someone in the middle. Thank you. Over there. Hi. I have a question about the writing process. I think both of you mentioned drafts or novels or poems or something that didn't work out and that you're glad not to have published or pursued at what when do you so so when you're at that point when you think that might be happening how do you know that it's something you should abandon versus something that would get better if you Hmm. kept working on it Good question. Lainey, do you want to Yeah, well, I mean, the teacher. That's why I um, was grateful to have been externally forced to abandon it by the fact that (laughs) no one bought it. Um, And, and, but that, you know, it's a good question because that particular project, for example, I think um, if I were working with that material now, I could keep working on it and make it better and and maybe make it something that other people would want to read. So, in a way, I think it, sometimes it's more okay, I'm going to put this aside for now, which might end up being forever, and focus on something else. Um, I think I had to really look at, you know, how much of my ego was involved in it, and like, oh, why? Because it was also a very autobiographical novel, so I I had that sort of attachment to the story that I I think wasn't helping me write it well. Um, So who knows? Maybe, like, in 20 years, I'll, like, dredge it up and work on it again. But... um, I guess maybe to look at that question in terms of the attachment, like what, you know, what's your investment in something uh, being published? Like this, you know, I have a friend who worked for like almost two decades on a book and she's like, it has to get published. It's like, well, why? Like, I mean, I understand that feeling, but like what if also in that time you're writing other things? Um, So that's probably not a very satisfying answer, but, but I think that just save everything and... (laughs) 
you know and see I don't know do you no I completely agree I think yeah for me as well it was like an external thing but I think also like it just you get to a point where it doesn't feel healthy anymore like I just I would like open it up and I'd be like this is this thing that I love it's my whole life I've spent years working on it it's really taken all my time and my love you've kind of it's like the sunk cost fallacy you've put all your (laughs) all your time into it and I would open it up and have a panic attack because I'd be like this is this is what I've been working on and like who am I if it doesn't Mm -hmm. like work out and actually like being free of it was freeing in itself it was a bit like well actually I don't have to think about it anymore and put my energy on it I can like if I put it aside and maybe I'll come back to it but I can write new things in the meantime and those new things might be better I think just like having that possibility of the new thing could be better like this isn't you this isn't this isn't your whole career it's just one project Mm -hmm. like realizing that was really helpful to me and I do think that yeah there is something liberating in I mean I remember um talking to Naomi Alderman, who is another uh, successful <laughs> writer of uh, feminist dystopias, but, but also of many other things. And um, I was talking to her just before she started, or before The Power was published, and she'd been write, working on a, a sci-fi novel, and she'd written, I think she said 140,000 words of it, Whoa. and just decided that it wasn't working and deleted it and I was she told me this and I was like oh, oh. it's like someone saying oh no, my, my, my leg hurts so I just cut it off what how did you how did you what if you need some of those words I know later. how did you live yeah. with that but she'd she just made this decision that this isn't working and if I keep hacking away at it it's not going to get any better so she got rid of it and started writing something else and that turned out to be the power which then won her the women's prize of fiction and has gone on to become this huge so sometimes it is just sometimes you just have to go do you know what there's something better out there and yeah I think that's think that's a terrifying that thing about writing a novel you don't know until you've done it yeah. you don't know until you've like done a considerable amount and even like with the water cure I'd be talking to my friends who don't write and I'd be like oh I've written a book but I mean need some work I don't know if, like, if yeah if it's kind of good enough and they're like oh so you just wrote like 70,000 words and just like on just just in the off chance and I was like yeah <laughs> yeah <that's laughs> nobody's what, waiting for it that's yeah. what you do <laughs> yeah yeah I, what was I going to ask you so um when you, uh, what was I going to ask you? <laughs> See, now I'm trying to remember what I was going to say. Um, Can I you, ask yeah, Sophie yeah, a question do, while do, you're thinking? Well, of, um, <laughs> because the, you know, that question about how do you know when something should, like, it, it, it's also a question I'm always curious when, when I read um, long form stuff that I really like, and I, re- you know, this is a great book, The Water Cure. It's great, um, and. I think about construction, you know, and how, you know, you wrote it versus, you know, the order in which you wrote certain things versus the kind of end end result and how much you, you tweaked the order and the structure. That's always just that kind of tech. I, I, I like thinking in terms of almost like mathematical intervals when I think of revision. And, um, and I'm just curious what sort of revision process you went through. So I love spreadsheets. I like yeah. to like do a summary, <laughs> like basically like put all my scenes and like shuffle them around. Like, you know, you have like um, I remember like seeing like people who kind of cut up, like print off the manuscript and like cut it up and like chop it around. Mm-hmm. That is really like that seems really fun to me. But I don't have like the admin skills to do it. Yeah. So I have a spreadsheet yeah. <laughs> instead. Um, yeah, I think it's like it's fun to kind of, I guess yeah. You, ha- you when you're writing a book and you have this idea of how it should be and like revision and cutting things and deleting things and moving things around is a way of kind of distancing yourself but also like just not being like too kind of attached to it if that, if that makes sense like mm-hmm. I don't know like just yeah. thinking like where should this go do I need this bit and just 
yeah, I like to delete things and to cut things up. And Do you both have trusted readers who you would show things to as you go along or maybe when you've done a, a draft who would give you advice that you trust or, or is it a really private process until you send it to a, an agent or, or whatever because I know people work in different ways. Yeah, um, I do have a couple. Um, my my sweetheart Luca um, uh, is who's he's a, a visual artist, but he's also an amazing like reader and, and writer. And English isn't his first language, and so he has um, a, a real attunement to um, things. That he reads in English in a different way, and so he's my very first reader. Um, and then I have a friend uh, who lives in New York. Um, I live in Oregon, uh, who's r- super critical, and he he like dislikes almost like most things in the world <laughs> not just like most but, but like like for him like to be incredibly enthusiastic about something he'll be like it was okay uh, like <laughs> if he said that about something I wrote I'd be like thank you yeah. so some so at some point before I send it to say my agent or an, an editor I would send things to him uh, and if you really want to, your confidence yeah <laughs> I mean he, he wouldn't yeah. be me he I, but like he's been really helpful and sort of looking at things and so there's that kind of um like two-tiered approach oh and another reader who's really important to me is my sister um who's not she's a reader but she's not a writer and she'll tell me what she thought was funny like like little jokes and things and i i i like that that comforts me you know if she thinks something's like amusing so yeah, yeah those are what about you? I didn't really have any readers for the water cure, um, except for my amazing agent Harriet. Um, so I think, like for my next book, I want to have more readers. But I do, I do show it to like my partner at like kind of the later drafts. Like I kind of the, the early drafts are mostly just me floundering away, and my partner just like not really read. <laughs> like maybe like two books a year, um, not including mine, especially maybe. But like <laughs> I kind of, I think coming to a book is like someone who's like not a big reader and like taking actually getting taking the time to get through it and to say what they think um from that perspective is like is really useful and sometimes I will like run ideas past him and just be like oh I've had this like great idea and he'll be like I don't like it and then but like within 24 (laughs) hours he'll kind of come back and be like I've thought about it and actually I think it's great and I'm like okay (laughs) um thank you for your perspective as (laughs) someone who doesn't who doesn't read that much (laughs) and now I'm saying this I'm like maybe I should like rethink my strategy (laughs) um but yeah, I think it's, it's, it's nice to have, I, I don't know, like so many of my friends are writers or kind of in that industry, it's nice to have feedback from people who really like don't care. <laughs> they care yeah. on a personal level yeah. whether I sell the book, but yeah. <laughs> or at least I guess if you know, if you can appeal to people who don't read a lot and they still like it, then you've, you've got a way to kind of broaden, <laughs> your, broaden your audience because, uh, you know, literary minded people will probably read it anyway. So then now you can reach, now you know it will reach non-readers as well. Um, did we have any more questions? Yeah, somebody in the middle there. Um, hi. Um, hi. This is probably one for Stephanie as well, actually. would be interested in all, all three of your opinions on this. What do you think the future of feminist writing is? Um, basically, you know, with 1980, I think, Hannibal's tale was written, the power, there is a kind of dystopian feminist literature at the moment. And as, you know, I, I just wonder what, where do you think it should go in the future? In my sisters are 14. I just wonder what are the books we would want them to be reading in 10 years' time when they're our age? Where, where do you think, what's the next, if it's not dystopia, what, what's next for feminist literature? Hmm. Do you want to take that one? <laughs> the hard, that's the hard one. Um, you know, something that 
I don't know if this is the future of it, but I, I think um, having an ever broader range of, of how stories are told, um, and, and by that I, I, I do mean um, having all of us read more widely in um, novels that, say, aren't structured in the way that we expect or or might not have some uh, triumphant resolution or because I think that is about um, kind of a feminist lens like see like kind of questioning the the stories that we've inherited about how we're supposed to behave how our bodies are supposed to look how a story is supposed to look and the kind of arc of our lives you know this um, I think a lot about 19th century anglophone literature at least in which you know the the woman was either dead by the end or married. Like those were kind of the things that you got to do, at, at least in you know a certain kind of class stratum. And um, and and so if if we have more and more experimentation and and sort of different ways of telling stories, that has a lot to do with imagining our lives in a in a vaster way. You know, so I would hope for your sisters to kind of. Um, be able to imagine all sorts of things for their own lives and not just like, well, by this age, I should have done that. I mean, another um, one of the reasons I call this book Red Clocks is because it, it was a reference to the biological clock and the ways in which um, for some women, you know, it's this question of like, oh, I got to do this by this age or I got to, you know, what if I don't have this by this age? And it, it's a constraint that, you know, most men I know have never experienced. I, yeah, I really hope it will just, it won't be like feminist literature almost won't be a thing. It will just be literature. It'll be just be reflecting the concerns of all of us. And we're just so used to seeing the kind of the dominant canon, I guess, is like reflecting the concerns, our male concerns. And actually, we won't be partitioning them off. It's just part of a broader landscape of like, what does it feel like to be a human being? And yeah, just to have it as a more thing yeah just not something that's its own thing that's like kind of othered but it's actually part of this whole amazing spectrum of human experience that's given the same weight yeah I think the thing that is changing slowly and I mean really slowly when you think how long the women's prize has been around is it 30 25 years 30 years now I mean it's it's quite a long uh, that's had a long gestation and obviously that came into being because of the year when there were no women on the Booker Prize even though there have for a long time been fantastic women writers out there telling women's stories so it's not like we have a shortage of them but I think they are still valued in a different way and I and there's a fantastic organization which uh, many of you may have heard of called Vida in the states which kind of measures and collates data on how many women critics and and women writers are reviewed in the national press um certainly in America and I think they they do it over here as well um and and just how that cultural conversation takes place because you know women's fiction is like you say so often dismissed and and put into a box of its own and and even when um when male writers are talking about you know domestic life and family life it's considered to be the great american novel and when women do it it's women's fiction Mm -hmm. Uh, and so that conversation is it's changing slowly and but i think also crucially um on screen is again you know where women's voices have have been so so much in short supply and I think there is a, a real desire now to see that change and there are women's film festivals and and you know quite prominent women like Reese Witherspoon setting up production companies that are actively looking for women directors and women's stories to tell and I think it's I think so I think it is changing but yeah slowly yeah what uh, last question down here
feel that it's facilitated like interesting conversations or if it can become like more of an inclusive thing maybe because with the whole like dialogue of toxic masculinity I think it can feel a bit like is it actually opening a discussion yeah. or are we just I'll just, I don't know if everyone caught that, but it was, it was really, you know, what kind of response have you had from male readers? And are, are we just talking to ourselves or, or is this going to open up a dialogue with, um, you know, the way that men relate to women's writing and women's stories? I think um, I always think about unconscious bias when I'm thinking about, like, people's response to my writing. Because I think even if you're, like, someone with, you think you're an open-minded reader, you are still going to have these preconceptions and especially, like, having a book like mine I think there are so many readers who will read my book thanks to the book the, the book along listing who would not in a million years thought I'm going to pick up like a feminist dystopia not even consciously but just in terms of like that's not a thing they would do and so coming if you come to it and read it you're still having those kind of biases and I don't know I think it's just it, it's really interesting to me sometimes I've seen criticism of my book is like quite gendered you know you see like people using men especially using words like silly or you know like kind of saying it's trivial um and that's interesting to me because it makes me think like who how do we decide what is important these this is a really important story for me to tell like and it's not just a gender thing as well i think it's just it's about kind of unpicking those biases we all have in ourselves like we can have them as women thinking about the stories that are worthy of telling or that we have been told throughout our lives the ones we should be like listening to and I, yeah it does have an extra value for me than in a weird way when men are like I really enjoyed your book and it's really made me think and I I'm really like I'm really glad I read it because it's given me a lot to think about because I just think that's yeah that's like wonderful for me to hear that um yeah yeah something I think about sometimes is um and I get this com- comment from all people of all genders but so the the male characters are really like on the margins in in this book and was you know were you worried about doing that was that intention and um and it's just an interesting thing to think about like I can I can think of many many book I mean you know Hemingway alone wrote books where like there's no like female character who even speaks in the book you know (laughs) like and compared with that like my I have a lot of male action you know in in the book but um Again, I think about the history of, of sort of who whose experiences are the kind of universal ones that are just always going to be there, and who um, be, who be, which characters become like the window dressing, right? And so, um, yeah, at some point when I was writing Red Clocks, I was like, yeah, there are no main characters who are men because they're not, and I, I didn't want to sort of capitulate to some uh, pers- like the criticism that I would get, like, oh, the male characters are so minor you know but but they're pretty minor (laughs) 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 it's like well i mean i think like like, just it's like it's not like the female characters come across particularly well either it's not it's really not if i think if people are reading it and they're like oh this book is saying like men are terrible and like this book is just being like men are men are awful it's like well you completely missed the point like a lot of the, Uh the things the girls say like saying like the lies they've been taught about how bad men are have been taught to them by a man. It's like, you know, it's like mm. a, a hall of mirrors. Just so clear <laughs> in the book. I mean, I, I, it would be such a misreading of the book to think otherwise. But yeah. but um, the great thing is that you can buy both of these books and decide for yourself. <laughs> and they are, of course, um, completely accessible and inclusive to all genders. Um, so please do uh, head to the bookshop where Lainey and Sophie will be signing and we'll have time to answer any more questions that you didn't get a chance to ask. Please join me in thanking... 
Plenisimus and Sophie McIntosh. Thank you. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.